Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Before we dive into this week's episode, I'd like to tell you about Storyweaver Book Coaching. This is support for memoirists, thought leaders, and creative entrepreneurs at the beginning of their writing journey. You've got stories to tell. You feel like you've got a book inside of you. Before you can weave your visions into the chapters and birth this book into the world, you've got a lot of untangling and imagining to do. And that's where I come in. I can help you explore your personal experiences, get clear on your big ideas, and get clarity on what makes your book unique and compelling. I'm here as a sounding board and a thought partner. I'll ask tough questions and also give you a safe space to land. When it's time to start putting words on the page, I can be your trusted first set of eyes, and we can begin to craft your manuscript together. Learn more over at my website, marisagowdy.com. Let's talk and see if Storyweaver Book Coaching might be just what you're looking for. Season 2, Episode 13, Mysteries and Holy Wells, Three Stories of Healing and the Quest for a Cure. Our guest is Elizabeth Stack. Elizabeth is the Executive Director of the Irish American Heritage Museum in Albany, New York. Previously, she taught Irish and Irish American history and was an associate director of the Institute of Irish Studies at Fordham. She completed her Ph.D. at Fordham, writing about Irish and German immigrants in New York at the turn of the 20th century as they grappled with the immigration restriction movements of that time. She has a master's degree in Anglo-Irish relations in the 20th century from University College Dublin. A native of Listowel in County Kerry, Elizabeth sees a huge connection between her own experience as an immigrant, she moved to the U.S. in 2009, with the important mission of the museum to preserve and share Irish heritage and culture. I am so excited to welcome Elizabeth Stack to the podcast today. As is our way at Knotwork Storytelling, we ask the stories to speak for themselves, and then we'll talk about how they resonate and why they still matter. So Elizabeth, will you tell us a story? I will. Well, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories or three, I think, stories, but it's all to do with illness and the practice of illness uh, and cures. So holy wells, as you probably know, are very popular in Ireland, particularly in certain parts of Munster. I'm from County Kerry. The story I'm going to tell today is from a well in Tipperary. There were certainly hundreds of these wells, some of which were documented as early as the late 1700s. And in fact, legislation had been passed by the British to tear down the wells or to arrest people who leave offerings. And so it's it's a very funny part of Irish history and, and the Irish practice of Catholicism, because, of course, during the penal laws, you couldn't really practice your religion. And the ordination of new priests was forbidden, you know, all these kinds of things. And so Irish Catholicism until after the Great Hunger was a, a weird blend of pagan and what they could remember of the taught church. In fact, even, you know, St. Patrick had come to Ireland in the, in the four or five hundreds. We didn't have a Latin influenced church until about two or three hundred years later. So the Irish version of Catholicism has always been a little bit more pagan or folkloric centered. And so these wells, often attached to a monastery or often maybe had been there before the monastery was built and then the monastery subsumed it. And so people would go on what was called pattern days. And this was a big occasion for a town. You know, you'd it was often to honor the saint that was attached to the well. So St. Bridget or St. Patrick, but all these other very obscure wells. We have a well near us in the stole and supposedly it has a cure for eyes but the saint is nobody I've ever heard of. <laughs> so, And so people would go and leave a token on the tree, maybe the piece of cloth that they used to soak in the well and bring home and cure whoever, you know, they would bring that back. Something maybe personal. And as I say, Queen Anne actually passed legislation to prevent that from happening. But today, certainly at St. Bridget's Well in County Clare, it's near Listoon Varna, 
and there's one up in her home place of Kildare too. The tree is inundated up in Kildare, like with little bits of ribbon. And there's a whole tunnel in Liston Varna where people have left photographs or pictures. So it's very moving and kind of magical, you know, and this brings us back to, of course, I was saying, because we imposed religion on the Celtic and the pagan, some of these are kind of fairy practices. So the wells, you would go to the well and walk around it in what was called a round, but it was sometimes kind of linked to the rosary. You know, people would say a certain amount of prayers in a certain pattern. You could either bathe in the water sometimes or, as I say, fill a little vessel and take it back if somebody was too sick to travel or sometimes drink the water. It's very interesting now that we're all obsessed with health and safety. Some of these wells have been tested and they are actually a lot of minerals that may have helped, particularly with skin conditions. So, uh, you know, you'll find a lot of the wells like cured scrofula, which is kind of they call a TB of the neck. More cynical people would say they were cured because they finally were taking a bath, <laughs> you know, because people did not tend to wash themselves very frequently. But this one particular well near Conmel is apparently, you know, very well dated. This was in 1914, in April of 1914. This very famous well, St. Patrick's Well, near Marlfield in Tipperary, was known to have curative powers. And John was only 13 years of age. He had hurt his leg somehow a few years ago and had had surgery, which didn't really work. And then he had to have a second surgery. And you can imagine as a young teenage boy, the pain that he was going through, he wasn't able to play with his friends, all those kinds of things. So his mother brought him to visit the well. Now, the interesting thing about his mom was she was from Tipperary Town, which was maybe 30 miles away from Conmel. She apparently had previously been cured from a different well. As a child, she had injured her finger and was going to be amputated. And her aunt sent her a jar of water from a well and they prayed and her finger was cured. So because the mother believed in the power of the well, it's alleged, her faith was kind of able to inspire the son and guarantee his cure. So he visited the well three times in August of 1912. And then he had to go back in August of 1913. And his last visit was St. Patrick's Day in 1914, these visits. And on every visit, his mother came with him and mother and son recited five decades of the rosary. And they said seven Hail Marys in honor of St. Patrick. There was a little ruined church near the well, which is actually quite a huge well. And there's kind of a lake and a beautiful view. It's very well visited still today. And they said prayers again there before the site of the altar. And a week after his last visit on St. Patrick's Day in 1914 to St. Patrick's Well, he discarded his crutches and he was able to walk with a stick and very soon after that was walking unaided. So his story kind of spread far and wide and people were absolutely believing that the well had happened. Now, I should say he also had surgery on his leg, whatever was wrong with his leg. So, but, you know, it's the power that people had ascribed to these places remained very powerful. And then a very interesting thing happened in a town not too far from Conmel, uh, where this well is. In 1919, the War of Independence started in Ireland. Actually, funnily enough, the first shots were fired in Tipperary too, in a town called Salahabeg. But in 1920, British soldiers, technically called the Black and Tans, you know, they were given a mixture of uniforms because the British government didn't really want to send in the army. So they didn't provide them with a full army uniform. There was a mixture between the army uniform and the police uniform. The Northamptonshire Regiment attacked Temple Moor, which is a town in Tipperary, because an RIC officer, one of the police officers, had been killed by the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, the day before. So they come into this town kind of shooting off their guns. The Black and Tans were sort of infamous for taking their violence out on civilian population and kind of random attacks. And they set fire to a number of homes and businesses. And in that attack, ironically enough, no civilians or IRA people were killed, but two soldiers accidentally got trapped in the fires that they themselves had set. Now, Maybe a night or two after that, a 16-year-old farm labourer, and again, you know, it's interesting to talk about the age of these boys, a young 13-year-old to be cured in the other story, and now this 16-year-old, James Walsh, said that he was visited by the Virgin Mary in his cottage uh, in a little village, Corraheen, outside the town. 
that she told him she was very troubled by what was happening in Ireland, she requested that he dig a hole in the ground in his bedroom. Of course, uh, these mud cabins, you know, often only did have a, a mud floor and the hole filled with spring water. He claimed that he had at least a, one statue of the Virgin Mary and she started to bleed tears. He took the statues into the town of Templemore and the bleeding was witnessed. One man in the town who had been crippled for most of his life claimed he was dancing in the streets after visiting Walsh in his cottage. And he was the first of many who claimed that either the presence of Walsh or the statues cured them of whatever their ailments were. Now, amazingly, people started flooding into the town in the middle of this war of independence. It was sort of seen, some people say, as an act of protest, that they were asserting their Catholic identity in the face of this British opponent, that their spiritual powers would win out against the substantial worldly powers of the British Empire. And so it was reported in local and national newspapers and more pilgrims started to come to look at these statues, which were now kind of on display. In the end of August, one of the police inspectors wrote to the Dublin Castle administration, estimating that about 15,000 pilgrims per day were coming into the town. And they nicknamed Templemore Pilgrimville. Some were coming for cures for illnesses and reported that they received them. Allegedly, one of the Royal Irish Constabulary police officer resigned from his job to join a religious order. And allegedly, one of the soldiers was reported to convert to Catholicism. So there was this huge economic windfall for the town. But the church remained cautious. The, the official position was, quote, extreme reserve. Uh, the parish priest was a man called Kylie, and he refused to go down, you know, and look at the statues or even to kind of bless them. But nobody tried to stop the pilgrims from coming. The priest said, if it's a prank, it will fizzle out. And if not, why should I stop it? So the IRA commander, James Leahy, noted that the older church were more sceptical of this young boy, Walsh, who claimed to have, you know, had this Marian apparition. But the younger clergy were very enthusiastic about his claims. So one of the statues, there was three statues involved. One of them was given to one of the local police constables named Winsey, and he put the statue in the barracks, kind of on display. I'm not sure if he was displaying it or kind of had he taken it away so that the power would be cut. But in fact, a lot of the RIC, these policemen, were Catholic Irish. You know, it was a job that people did back in the day. So these were not like foreign British soldiers occupying. So this statue that they put in the barracks was said to be bleeding as well. And in fact, pilgrims tried to siege the, the police station to get in to enter it. So they had to remove the statue from there and put it on display in a public order. And so eventually the IRA kind of take over because they have to organize the traffic and help the pilgrims and, and basically keep order. They did not appear in, in uniform in the streets. So it was kind of an undercover IRA, but neither were they arrested by the Crown forces, which is kind of impressive because this is in the height of the violent year. You know, 1920 was a very violent year for the IRA. So the IRA commander, James Leahy, imposed a levy on traffic that was coming into the town. They raised donations and all of this money went to the IRA, apparently, to help them buy arms. <laughs> so, you know, now maybe we're seeing the origin of, of the story. But, you know, they kept order in the town. He apparently reached out to the director of IRA intelligence, Michael Collins, and there was a little bit of back and forth, apparently, up in Dublin about what to do with this. You know, should we allow these kind of pilgrims to keep going? And apparently Michael Collins kind of dismissed somebody who was very non-believing. And he said, well, one can't take any notice of what you say because you have no religion. So, you know, Michael Collins tacitly let it go. <laughs> so they unfortunately, the war did start up again. Soldiers were attacked, two constables were killed. The town was maybe going to be attacked. So Walsh's cottage had to be emptied out. The statues were taken back. In fact, one of them was gone up to Dublin. And apparently when Michael Collins got his hands on one of the statues, it had been rigged internally with a fountain pen insert. And 
there was kind of an alarm clock set up. And so at certain times, this fake blood, whether it was ink or animal blood, would would come out. So nobody knows if James Walsh was a spy, had he done this at the request of the IRA. He ended up leaving Tipperary and actually going to Australia and lived there for the rest of his life, never returned to Ireland. So no one is sure if it was like a prank from this 16-year-old boy that got out of hand or was it a money-making operation in, in the name of the IRA? Although most people admit the IRA had probably nothing to do with it to begin with, that they were able to sort of take over in the end. But there's a, a book was written recently about this called The Temple More Miracles. And it's so interesting to me that, you know, in the middle of a war, for a couple of days and weeks at least, you know, this town finally saw peace. And so you wonder, you know, what was going through the head of that 16-year-old boy when he said he had his vision, you know. Which then brings us to my last story, which is set in Limerick. And I think it kind of just encapsulates all of these things that we've been talking about, the poverty of people, and it's to do with my grandmother. And of course, Ireland by now in 1920, I, I alleged earlier on that religion was not a huge part of Irish life until after the Great Hunger. And so people had now had what was called the devotional revolution. There was a lot of uh, discipline imposed on people and how they practiced their religion you know, the anti-Catholic laws had been repealed in 1836, but the, the famine was so devastating to the population and the demographics that it took a long time before that could kind of be re-established. So, uh, you know, you'll see a, a huge amount of church building going on in Ireland in the 1840s and the 1850s, despite the, the great hunger. So my grandmother was born in 1921, which again was the beginning of the War of Independence. And her father had been in the American Merchant Marine they had 11 children in a small, tiny house in Clare Street in Limerick, which was very close to the convent of the Good Shepherd, which, for those of you who know, was one of the Magdalene homes. It was, you know, the, the mother and baby homes. So my grandmother had all kinds of stories about that growing up across the street from that. You know, she said one day they were going to a dance when she was about 17 and a girl escaped from the convent and tried to jump in. They must have been in, you know, a pony and trap or some kind of conveyance. And a, a kind of a groundskeeper guy came running after her and grabbed her from them and basically whipped her all the way back up the street. So by this time, you know, in the early 30s, people were very afraid of the church and, the, the you know, the parish priest was a very powerful figure. They passed a law in, I think it was 1935, that banned dance halls and dancing at the crossroads and things, which was a very, very integral part of Irish cultural life, particularly in rural communities where I grew up in Kerry. The practice is back now, thank God, in, in the summer months. But like to dance at the crossroads was sort of innocent. I, you know, I think the, the priests were always afraid of people courting and all these things. So my grandmother's story is her sibling got very ill. And it's interesting, again, what people don't tell you or, or what they didn't know themselves at the time, how they can't explain their own story. My grandmother was told when she was a child and she told me that her sister hit her hip on the desk at school and she had a really big bruise. And suddenly, you know, a week later, she's dying in hospital. So it sounds like it might have been sepsis or something. Undoubtedly, I think my grandmother's family were much poorer than we were made aware of and you know certainly thank god we didn't grow up with that level of poverty but i remember when angela's ashes came out my grandmother was so mad because she it felt like somebody was telling secrets from the family and she absolutely denied it you know that nobody could be that poor and limerick was not that bad and she absolutely detested the book and i think it was because it touched a raw part for her you know so one night she was visiting her sister in hospital. I doubt if it was in the convent across the street from them because I don't think they had a hospital necessarily. So it was probably Barrington's or one of the other hospitals. But my grandmother, they were taking it in turns. I'm not sure, you know, if my grandfather would have been away or my great grandfather would have been away for work at the time or not. But apparently the siblings were taking it in turns to stay with Philly, her younger sister. And she was nicknamed Philly Drumstick because she had a, a gap in her teeth. Well, that's not why she was called Drumstick. Sorry, she had a gap in her teeth. I only know two things about her. She had a gap in her teeth that she could whistle through. 
and she loved what was called like a, a drumstick. It was a penny toffee or something that they could buy at the local store. So they obviously didn't get these treats very often, but they she loved them enough that they called her Philly drumstick, you know, because of this toffee. So my grandmother was with her the night before she died. And again, like, I don't even really know what she died of, or I think she was about nine. And my grandmother was probably 10 and a little bit. And she was, Philly said to her, Sally, my grandmother's name was Sarah, Sally, I'm scared. Will you come into bed with me? And my grandmother lay on the bed next to her. And of course, they lived in a two or three bedroom house, these 11 kids. So they absolutely shared beds in their own house all the time. And for any of you who sleep next to somebody when they're not in the bed, you feel their loss, you know. And so my grandmother got alongside her in the bed and was holding her hands and a nun came in and absolutely gave out sugar to her because she hadn't taken her shoes off and how dare she get on the bed and and sent her home. And Philly died that night on her own. So it's this heartbreaking story of like the powerlessness in the face of illness, an illness that you can't even name or describe or diagnose. And, you know, who knows, maybe her parents knew when they just didn't tell her, but also the kind of fear of the church. And I think my trinity of stories show almost the evolution, but it's a devolution in a way, you know, that these unstructured cures that happened at wells for years, for centuries, that people had so much faith in them. And that it was encouraged, as I say, by the local monastery or whoever was attached. And then this kind of period in the middle in, in 1920, when Republican Ireland was rising and they were gaining independence. And for a brief moment, this use of the Catholic religion and the belief in the religion helped one town at least find peace for a little while. And then by the 30s, the power had gone so much to the the structure of the church that the humanity was totally gone out of it. And so you think of Patrick, this 14-year-old boy who was able to bathe in the water and kick off his crutches to, you know, a nine-year-old girl 15, 20 years later, not being allowed, you know, sleep with her sister in, in the bed in a hospital because it's not what you do. So the propriety of things had totally dehumanized people's experiences. Oh, wow. Elizabeth. <laughs> It strikes me that we're going to be releasing this in October. We're at a time when we think about our, we think about the spirits, we think about, you know, with Samhain coming, with, with Hallow's Eve, as well as thinking about whether or not what happened in 1920 was a prank, which is a little bit mm-hmm. of Halloween in there too. But in thinking about Philly Drumstick, she would have been just about 100 right now, mm-hmm. right? And that we have mm-hmm. this opportunity to remember a life that ended entirely too soon. Mm-hmm. Thank you for bringing here to us. Well, you know, it's it's so sad, I think, that my grandmother died in 2004. And you always say, you know, she told us these stories again and again. And sometimes you'd kind of get bored, like, oh, not the Philly drumstick story, you know. And now that we don't have her, that we can't clarify those details, it's kind of heartbreaking because I all of her siblings are dead. And mm-hmm. I know some of my mom's cousins, you know, might know more of the story because they stayed in Limerick. My grandmother married a Kerryman and, and moved down to Kerry. So I'm sure like people in the family know a little bit more of the detail or or were more curious. My grandmother, right. I think, chose to not dwell on the past. You know, even though she told us those stories, she didn't ever like interrogate her own memories of it or, you know, she was never oh, I wonder what Philly did have, you know, like it sounds weird that you would die from banging your hip. You know, she never wanted to question it. Right. And of course, as your podcast and, and us as Irish people, stories are so important to us and to fill in those gaps. Or so when you have a half told story, you know, it's it's this kind of niggling thing that you can't ever really be satisfied with because there's more to the story. Right. And I just imagine your grandmother as, you know, an 11 year old girl, probably mortally terrified she might go bump her hip, you know, I mean, absolutely. and and how much trauma gets buried in there to say, opening that box up to tell it as a story. Yeah, it would be entirely too hard, especially knowing what her reaction would have been to Angela's ashes and Frank McCourt's work. Like, there was a lot there that she just wasn't ready to wrap up in a tale she could tell grandchildren. 
yeah absolutely and you know it's like she never spared us her stories were you know looking back now very harsh like because she did live opposite that convent and you know she told me her best friend lived next door they were Clancy's as well but no relation apparently and Rita's Rita Clancy's father was widowed and he married again very quickly as Irish men you know tended to do and of course very stereotypical you know stepmother wicked stepmother you know she Rita Clancy had beautiful hair and apparently her stepmother was jealous of her and the mother cut her hair but now you're thinking like TB was rampant in Ireland in at those times they cut your hair often for fevers or you know lice or and you wonder if there was a health reason behind the cutting of the hair that my grandmother never knew or didn't appreciate you know and but all of her stories were just I mean some of them were funny and and they had great times. She was very close to all of her siblings. There was always a, a kind of a just wait because something might happen. You know, there, there was a kind of a darkness that they lived with, I think, that is thankfully gone from a lot of Irish homes. But yeah, as you say, her own, like it, she she retained definitely like a very strong faith, mm-hmm. not necessarily in, in religion. She didn't go to church, which was funny. Like she would watch mass on TV or listen to it on the radio. But she believed like in Padre Pio Mm -hmm. you know she had a a little card of his she believed in Saint Teresa it was very funny like she loved the pagan symbology behind you know religion all her life you know but but not necessarily the structure of the church well Mm -hmm. that's what mystics do right is they find that the mystery and the magic within that offers that spark which really escapes the structure of mm-hmm. sitting in the harsh pews and going through mm-hmm. and having lived across from a Magdalene laundry would certainly yeah. get you thinking, I want to stay as far away from those straight lines and angles and prison cells as yeah. I possibly could. Yeah, oh. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you know, when I was nine, my mother had a baby. And of course, you know, you're running around like a little mother hen. And my grandmother lived with us sometimes. And I had I stupidly like my my mother asked me to warm her bottle and usually you would put the bottle into a jug and, and pour the boiling water into the jug and I just was like not thinking mm-hmm. I had done this you know a hundred times so I held the bottle in my hand and poured the boiling water over my hand <laughs> straight from the kettle and my you know I was crying my hand was red it was not blistered but very very sore and I went to bed they, they put pseudocreme which is just like lavender <laughs> You know, there's not, it's not medicinal. They put soda cream on my hand and I went to bed with my hand absolutely throbbing. And I woke up the next morning with not a mark on my hand, no pain. Like, and I said to, you know, my God, my hand, I, I thought we'd have to go to the doctor today. You know, And my grandmother said, oh, I rubbed it with Padre Pio's relic. And, you know, it's one of these things that I, I sometimes kind of think, did it even happen to me? Because, you know, I wasn't aware of it. I was asleep at night, mm-hmm. but her faith was so strong. You know, mm-hmm. And I mean, maybe it wasn't third degree burns, you know, it was just boiling waters. But at the same time, you know, there was for me, you know, as a nine or 10 year old, there absolutely was an element of, ooh, like I've magically been cured, you know? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. you know, speaking of the holy water, uh, though, one can't see us, you can see that I'm holding up this little jar right here, which is water from from Liz Canner, from the oh, Bridget's Well. Same bridge. Isn't it beautiful? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I grew up with a French Canadian grandmother and my my mother had the Irish had the Irish in her from from my grandfather's side. But in that similar way of there was always a little holy water around mm-hmm. somewhere. And it was mm-hmm. a quiet thing that you just knew it was nearby. Yeah. Memories of the the French Canadian priests and my family blessing our cars when we drive up yeah. to Canada and sprinkling. Yeah. And that, you know, Absolutely. that was the 80s and it fe- felt like another world then. Oh, they must only do that in Canada. Well, it's, <laughs> no, they must only do that when they're a, a priest yeah. born in the 20s, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people would still have those kind of, I was going to say superstitions, but Mm -hmm. you would still bless a a journey or people. Absolutely. I think a lot of people that fly, you know, are are quite nervous. And I must admit, I say a prayer every landing and take off, you know. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So tracing the amount of change that you offer us within 20 Mm -hmm. years, which kind of encapsulates a bigger change. And I really, as much as I've been a student of Irish literature and history for so long, I think in some ways I really missed that 
sense of it really wasn't till the middle of the 19th century when this sort of crystallized vision of Irish Catholicism came into place because it became so much a part of the country's identity, especially from mm-hmm. looking at it from the outside as a member of mm-hmm. the diaspora, as an American looking back and saying, oh my goodness, Irish Catholic Ireland, all the kids go to Catholic school. It all must have yeah. always been this way. Yeah. And it's not, you know, that's that's a very interesting point, Marisa. And actually, it's almost the opposite. I would think, to be honest, that particularly a guy like the Archbishop John Hughes, Dagger John, that founded Fordham University and the Immigrant Savings Bank, it was actually Irish America, I think, who kind of superimposed the sort of middle class values because Catholics had experienced a lot of negativity when they come to America. And I think we forget that, actually. We're very proudly Irish today and everybody wants to be Irish on St. Patrick's Day, you know, and it's you forget that there was this massive anti-Catholic nativism in the 1830s through the 1850s, you know, where churches were burned and and all of those nasty cartoons right into the 1870s and 80s that it was really thought that Irish Catholic immigrants could not become good American citizens because they did not know how to be small or Republicans. They they owed their allegiance to the Pope. Mm-hmm. So there's two things going on. You have the devotional revolution happening at home, but you have a kind of a similar revolution happening here in New York, where particularly John Hughes in New York or, or other leaders throughout the country were adamant that Irish Americans prove themselves to be good citizens mm-hmm. by by adhering to the rules of the church, but also by adhering to the civil rules, you know. And so I find that kind of fascinating that all of this is springing up. And then in Ireland is becoming much, much stricter in the 20th century in independence. Mm. So, you know, we have our Taoiseach, um, which prime minister at the time, you know, Eamon de Valera, very Catholic, very insular, you know, wanting to kind of issue any progressive outward looking, you know, like he's everything that Ireland needed to succeed, it had within itself. So as I say, they banned the crossroads dancing. There's no kind of investment in in anything. And for a long time, it was the greatest honor of your life. You know, if you had a child who grew up to become a nun or a priest and every family hoped that one child would have a vocation, both in Irish America and I think at home. And then all of a sudden, Ireland you know, in the last 20 years has kind of outpaced Irish America in terms of, well, I mean, you know, we've had all of these reports, three different reports on on clerical abuse in mm-hmm. Ireland, whether it is through, you know, the schools and orphanages and things. So mass attendance is way back. You know, I, I, we don't even have priests really, you know, so priests are sharing parishes or they're having to bring in priests from outside, which is incredible considering Irish people were ministers, you know, across the world. So we've had weird kind of reckoning you know our prime minister the last prime minister we had was gay we've had a very progressive i think outlook we we voted as a country the only one in the world to democratically vote for same-sex marriage so irish catholics are kind of gone back to their semi-pagan roots in a way i think you know where it's it's a more welcoming and a less formal less structured church People like the tradition, I think, of church, you know, like I know several people who have married within the church and they, you know, they baptize their kids, but they're not necessarily daily communicants by any means or or going to church even on a Sunday. And and I think they're happy with the ritual and tradition and they're happy with their spirituality and faith as it is without the need to practice Catholicism. So that's I think that has been a very interesting journey to watch, you know, while I've lived in Ireland and then moved here to to see how Catholic Irish America can be at times. You know, it's right. it's kind of uh, interesting. Well, where you and I most recently met was at the mm-hmm. Irish Echoes campfire event. And it was very interesting that diversity was definitely part of the focus of the day. We recently had Christian Bolden on the podcast who spoke mm-hmm. as a member of the African-American Irish Diaspora Network. He's on the board. Yes. <laughs> but diversity was certainly coming up also just within the ranks of what might be seen as more traditional Irish America, white Irish America, in thinking mm-hmm. about the you know the ancient order of Hibernian side of things that would be very much looking to the Catholic side of of, of tradition in that certain way. And it was very clear at the event too. It's like, this is a pro-choice marriage equality country that everyone's looking back to. 
Yeah. And when I really recognized, you know, I studied in Ireland 20 years ago now. When I went to Ireland, I was one of those American girls searching out the goddess inside the Marian yeah. shrines. You know, I was inspired by the poetry of New Linagonal because that's where you could find the goddess. And then you'd reach mm -hmm. back into the mythology and mm -hmm. found friends and comrades in that. But now and now I'm noticing even more, it's that sense of, oh, as the folkloric aspect of the faith, as the really, the, mm -hmm. it, it's interesting, tradition is such a difficult and, and nuanced word, but going back to, as you're describing what, you know, that Celtic Christianity perspective, mm -hmm. I know I've seen it just in my, in the last 20 years of watching, oh, it feels like, a lot of the different, the ways, the what I had been looking for in Ireland and found in the land is coming up more and more in the culture and in the conversation, perhaps, mm -hmm. as religion shifts. I think absolutely. Ireland was a weird country, you know, I think in the 20th century. And just from a historian's point of view, even, you know, we have a strangely matriarchal society in lots of ways, although a very patriarchal form of government, particularly in independence with de Valera. Mm -hmm. And so, like women had been at the forefront of like the common Amman movement, you know, during the 1916 rising, he always sidelined them. You know, he wouldn't allow women to fight in his 1916 barracks when he took over. Countess Markievicz led another battalion. You know, there was hundreds of women who were volunteers, but he thought they should be little nurses, you know. <laughs> and so it was interesting to watch like that all of these Scatha and Aoife were two warriors who trained Ku Cullen, you know, back in the day. So we've had the Bridget, you know, our goddess, and they're finally kind of making as much of our matron saint as, as we do of our patron saint. Mm -hmm. So it was this weird dichotomy in Ireland that women, on the one hand, you know, a mother in the family, the husband might come home and give her his paycheck. She very much ran the house and the household. She gave the husband an allowance and not in every family, of course, you know, but but legally, a married woman could not work for the state. They weren't entitled to a pension. I mean, similar to in America, women couldn't get credit cards in their own name. So it's very strange, you know, that socially and maybe culturally, privately, we were matriarchal, but everything official seemed to suggest we were not. And so, and I, I, I do think once the, you know, once all those convents closed and those stories came out, it was very difficult to stand in control of something that you couldn't defend as an institution. Right, right. I'm wondering if I can draw a good parallel here because I always, I don't want to essentialize femininity and the matriarchy and healing, but it's very mm. interesting to think about, we're here to tell stories of healing. We're thinking about that, the use of the holy water. And mm -hmm. then we start discussing the different roles of women. We start discussing mm -hmm. the different ways that femininity and the matriarchy come to the fore. And it's so interesting. It's almost just cycles or waves of this crest mm -hmm. and then this repression, this sense mm -hmm. of we're going to go back to these ancient remedies and then mm -hmm. there's going to be a new way in which, oh, no, we need to trust in what the priest says. We need to trust in what modern medicine is. It just feels like mm -hmm. it more it just underlines something that I think we almost know intuitively and, and certainly can trace historically as well as this sense of where is the matriarchal and the patriarchal, the breathe in mm -hmm. and the breathe out. Mm -hmm. And it seems to constantly be shifting and in relationship, which I suppose is the nature of life. Yeah, it's it's a pity that it's not more in balance, yeah. you know, that it seems like one has to be on top instead of the other. And and I think it probably won't be completely effective or completely sustainable unless it's in balance. Yes. And I mean, we we just talked about St. Bridget, who was probably a goddess or a pagan. These stories get used because the, she was so powerful a figure that they couldn't not have her. Yeah. But, you know, she was a healer in her own lifetime. I mean, we know she existed and her monastery was bisexual or bisexual <laughs> she allowed men and women you know right. in the so it wasn't segregated is what I'm saying right. <laughs> and uh, you know maybe she was the most correct kind of of all of the paths because she didn't discriminate she absolutely was inclusive she was the patron saint of brewers and and farmers and you know and disfigured her beauty mm -hmm. don't forget because she didn't want to be given away and, and so you know it, but it's all these sacrifices that women have to make to be acceptable or there's just so much i think going on in in irish history and in irish culture that there's a secret awareness i think of 
we have a guy coming to give a lecture, Dr. Andrew Snedden from, um, I think, University in Ulster. The funny thing about, because we're talking about Halloween, the witchcraft phase never really made it to Ireland. There was a couple of trials up in the north of Ireland in the Protestant community. And I, I think it's so fascinating. He His work has kind of shown that Irish people accepted witches. Right because we have had them forever. So we weren't panicked in the 1600s, you know, because a a witch was kind of a wise woman. Mm -hmm. When medicine started to become professionalized and men take over, particularly around issues of childbirth and stuff, you know, women knew how to rid yourself of an unwanted pregnancy through herbs and things. And so, I mean, who wants to give birth lying down? Thankfully, I've never given birth. So, I, you know, I don't know. But, you know, you it stands to no common sense that you would lie down. Gravity is absolutely know. essential. I will yeah, speak from experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so when women did it, you know, you had a birthing stool mm-hmm. and you but you had to lie down because it was eye level for the doctor while he was seated, you know. And so right. it's amazing, like what the little common sense things that we lost yeah. through this professionalization. Right. And so Andrew's work, I think, is so fascinating because there's a couple of witch trials. Alice Kittler was killed in the 1300s, and that's a kind of a different thing. But he says because Catholics absolutely do not buy into demonic possession of the woman, they they believe that a woman can have certain powers, mm-hmm. that maybe she's a changeling, maybe she's a fairy, and like let her go on about her business. <laughs> so we don't have the witch hunts that are present in other communities, which I think is so fantastic for us in one way you know (laughs) absolutely yes let the bonfasa the wise woman do her work at the hut at the end of the lane right biddy early had her bottles (laughs) exactly and if she's a a mischievous one like you had ways to protect yourself against that you know you you could put a charm on the thing yourself or or you could get the priest to bless it so people felt sufficiently protected against the potential negativity of a witch, you know, mm-hmm. negativity of a witch, which I think is just fascinating, you know. Well, they had a holy well down the lane. And if they wanted they to be protected, <laughs> they would just grab yeah. a bottle of their own, right? Yeah. Or, you know, as simple as leaving bread out as an offering or not throwing your water out the front door mm-hmm. so that you didn't annoy the fairies passing by, you know, little right. things like that, that everyone knew how to live in harmony yes. with an entity that could potentially hurt you or potentially do you a favor, you know? So it's that balance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just to Mm -hmm. kind of offer, well, it's a plug for a previous Network Storytelling episode, but that really speaks to this essence of balance and refers to Bridget. Laura Murphy, who's the poet in residence for Herstory, Ireland, was on the podcast earlier this season, and she came and told a story of the goddess Bowen. And for her, the real essence of this story is finding that balance between, you know, as she would give it in this story about the divine masculine and the divine feminine, but just that whole essence of, as you described it in Bridget's work too, when, you know, her monastery was open to all because Mm -hmm. the segregation and separation out of fear of sexuality and all the other things Mm -hmm. that caused that to happen she offered another way because she gave us, she was the goddess of childbirth and gave us the anvil to go and and Mm -hmm. craft things from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, just all of these overlaps and how they just keep weaving around. Elizabeth, I'm so grateful to you for just bringing us so much. We could go on all day. I feel like just, I still want to just linger with you at the crossroads and see who else appears because Mm -hmm. all of the stories just seem to, they come together. Mm -hmm and create obviously why this not just national but global fascination with Ireland with Irish culture with Irish story touches so mm-hmm. many of us mm-hmm. yeah and I think it's it's very organic I remember reading Sue Monk kids traveling with pomegranates it's you know an amazing book and she talks about her search for the divine feminine and it was so I think if you're just still sometimes these things do come because there's a, a there must be a memory a psychic memory down through the generations mm-hmm. and so even though my grandmother's stories are sometimes not fully there sometimes there's as John O'Donoghue says there's presence in the absence too and so those gaps are important yes you know even though they're tragic Right. Even though the evil stepmother next door had to become something out of a fairy tale, that Mm -hmm. allowed you to be told that story, to remember, Mm -hmm. to then wonder about what was really going on besides just one, you know, archetypal stepmother cruelty 
what else was happening in Limerick at that moment? Mm -hmm. What else did she mm -hmm. live through? Mm -hmm. Wow. Absolutely. Well, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about the Irish American Heritage Museum. I feel like we've touched on a <laughs> bit of that, but can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the museum and your work there? Sure. Well, it's 35 years, imagine now, the old, the museum founded in East Durham originally, kind of as a seasonal little operation. And then we moved to Albany about 10 or 12 years ago, and I took over in 2018. So we have evolved. <laughs> the whole, I think, thing seems to be evolution today. And we are basically the mission of the museum is to share the stories of the Irish in America and the contributions. And that has become more and more complex. You know, we, we spoke a little bit earlier on about diversity, the day of the Irish Echo Campfire. And in fact, we had Lenny Sloan and Mick Maloney here a couple of weeks before that. And 36% of African-Americans have Irish ancestry, imagine. And so our community is more diverse than we think. Mm -hmm. And I'm constantly, we give a lot of talks here at the museum. Most of them are live streamed on YouTube. So you can check out our, our YouTube channel because the museum itself is quite small. You know, we do, it's mostly reading, right? There's not a whole pile of artifacts to look at. But the longer I sit here trying to formulate how to tell the story and, and what stories to tell, it, we've included a lot more women, of course, in, in the stories. But the interesting thing about it too is how like other people our story is. Mm. And so because sometimes Irish America tends to get a little bit political about things, you know, if you if you talk about the great hunger, they're immediately, oh, no, it was genocide. No Irish historian calls that period genocide. It, it may be for semantic reasons, because there's a strict legal definition of genocide that 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 period just does not fit. This was how the government dealt with poor people in England. Irish people treated other Irish people horrifically. It was the failure of one crop, which unfortunately a very overpopulated country was dependent on, you know, but at the same time, it's a very complex and you can't boil it down to just genocide, mm -hmm. for instance. But then at the same token, a lot of Irish Americans are very anti-immigration today. And so, you know, you, you kind of can't hold both ideas, I think, in your head at the same time, you know, that just recently we, when we saw those refugees, not illegal immigrants, literally refugees being transported from one state to another without their knowledge or approval or without the correct paperwork. We still talk about the great hunger, people dying on coffin ships 160 years ago, and we don't see the parallel, you know. Right. So that's kind of without getting political about it. That's the mission of the museum to try to create empathy mm -hmm. that if our story is worth telling 175 years ago, and it is the 175th anniversary of Black 47, the worst year of the Great Hunger. If our story is relevant today from back then, then the fact that it's still happening today to other people should also move us. Right. And I see that as being more and more the mission of the museum, that we're not kind of putting up shrines to some misremembered past mm. without saying what's happening currently too. Right. And it just really mm. underlines how much empathy and storytelling and education are intended to inform politics. And that is not a yeah. political statement. It is a sense of let's all sit and look back yeah. at various perspectives, at well-researched yeah. perspectives, and listen to human stories told in the past and in the moment, that's the only way we change the world for the better, not with another absolutely. slogan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, you know, if you can feel sorry for your ancestors, you know, that, oh my God, nearly died on a coffin ship and walked down from Montreal, then you can feel sorry for migrants walking from Venezuela today. Right. And so I, I think those stories are so important and it's not to take from the suffering, you know, or, or to take from the the delight that we have that we survived all of that. Mm -hmm. But it's so important to, as you say, like do something with the story. You know, you have to be able to internalize it and understand right. what it means. Right. And definitely, even as a museum, you know, we don't want to be dusty relics in glass cases that nobody can touch. You know, right. it is more about reaching people, you know. So yeah. so I'm I'm very proud of the work we're doing and you know, we're getting bigger and better. COVID was a mixed blessing. I, you know, I think we panicked initially because we were a bricks and mortar institution that had to close its doors. You know, yeah. they say 30% of New York museums will not reopen. Wow. So these little entities and houses, house museums, that kind of thing. That's a lot of material culture to lose and a lot of stories and memories to lose. And 
we had to adapt and we adapted by telling the stories literally instead of on the walls. And so, you know, we we have a huge program uh, for October, to be honest, and right through the year. And there's over, you know, a hundred and something videos on our YouTube channels of other topics. So, oh. you know, I encourage everybody to look it up. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'm happy to share those links. And I just want to, you know, as a plug for how much I enjoyed going to the museum, I brought my 12-year-old daughter to see Mankan Magan's Aran Agas Im. And certainly he's somebody who's making Irish language and culture come alive in all new ways that are yet yeah. so ancient and yeah. and just such a wonderful thing to be able to drive up an hour from New Paltz up to Albany to see you. Yeah. So to well, see no, you. it was great. And Mancones was amazing. You know, that this the language and relationship to the land, you know, that if we lose that, I, I was fascinated by his work because yeah. he was talking about the Irish had how many words for milking cows and, and for the sound of a cow bereft of her calf. Yeah. And if we don't use that and now we have industrial farming, like what is that doing to us as a people? It was, you know, it was fascinating, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. I mean, it just brings us back to the land. It brings us back to the yeah. waters that flow. Ultimately, yeah. that's where we come from. That's where our healing always returns mm-hmm. with a bit of sparkle and spark from the skies. However, we want to <laughs> we look at religion yeah. and, and mysticism. Yeah. But it's ancient knowledge. You know, it's ancient and we have to keep uncovering it. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming and helping to uncover some stories from the yeah. last century and to reach so far back and beyond and into the future. Thank you for having me, Risa. It was great. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Not Work Storytelling. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, my courses, and how to work with me as a coach, as well as my online community, The Heroine's Knot, at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at Knotwork Podcast and join our listeners group on Facebook. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.